the title for our message is Resting in Providence, Part 4. Part 4, and if you were going to put um, um, parentheses to it, it would simply be defined and overview. Defined and overview. And I mean, we're going to try to define further the providence of God, and I'm going to give you a picture of where we're going to be going in the future. So Resting in God's Providence, Part 4, several weeks ago, um, I went through the first two sections of the resting in providence, and in particular, we looked at the book of Esther as our roadmap to see how God's providence unfolded through the book of Esther. And now we are here, where, where I said we would go, is to begin to walk through scripture and see the providence of God. And the title is uh, with thought, that is, um, there's a purpose behind the title which I want all of us, myself included, to learn through this study how we can rest in God's providence. So as we look further into this definition of providence, I want to provide you with, not this Sunday, but next, a scope of the providence of God. And when I say the scope of it, just the sense of the breadth of how God's providence interfaces with all of our lives and interfaces with other doctrines uh, that we will see unfold in the weeks ahead. And even when you think about the scope of God's providence, we might say the breadth of it, if you will. Um, I was away um, Wednesday through, um, when, when did I get back? Fr late Friday night, I was in Jacksonville, Florida for some training that had to do with my role at the seminary. And I, as I was coming back, um, on that flight, um, very interesting system that we were going over, and these beautiful cloud coverings, and it was at night, and it was just interesting how the lights from the city um, were coming up and making this great reflection in the clouds as we went over it. And one thing about it, as you know, if you've flown before, uh, there is a view that you gain at 37,000 feet that you don't have when you're at ground level, Correct. You see the scope of something. And if any of you have ever flown back into Southern California at night, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And you just see the vastness of the lights, and you just say people are spread out so far, you don't really appreciate it as much as you do when you're on, you know, Roscoe Boulevard or the 101 or the 405. <laughs> but when you're, at, you're coming in, of course, at that point, you're not at 37,000. I'm not sure what the altitude would be when you're approaching but nonetheless, you see the scope of it. You see the breadth of it. And when we think about God's providence, we're going to further look at the scope of it. How long, how broad, how wide is God's providence? And the question is, uh, why is that even important? Well, because in one sense, I would say it this way, it's important because as you realize how it interfaces and touches all these other areas, you can say to yourself, well, wherever I go, God's providence is reigning. It's ruling. It's controlling. So whatever stage I may find myself in life, God's providence is going to touch it. And as I was making that flight last night, every once in a while, peering out of the window, and sometimes it would go just dark because we were just over some plains or, or at times mountainous areas based on, I believe the flight plan would have taken us over some, then all of a sudden you see a light again because now you're over this city again. And I traveled, you know, from 
Jacksonville, Houston, here, I think it's um, 2,200 miles across. So I saw a great deal of territory. But that really is nothing when we think about the scope of God's providence because it is beyond that. God's providence is universal. It touches literally everything. He controls everything. And so again, with this title, Resting in God's Providence, I want us all to learn how we can rest in God's absolute control of all events in our lives. Now, uh, do you agree that we all need rest? Would you agree with that? Um, and without rest, we will underperform, and even at times, we may even jeopardize our health. You may not know this, but um, the world record for going without sleep, without sleep, think about this for a moment. In your mind right now, think about how long you think it may have been. Get a picture in your mind, okay? Um, I have gone, you know, some periods of time because I'm busy studying doing things, you know, 36 hours without sleeping. That's a long time. And it cost me once eventually I did go to sleep. And the thing about it, once you've done that to yourself, and maybe even before that it wasn't, it was four hours here and four hours here, and then you have to go 36 hours to get something done. And then actually when you sleep, you really don't sleep well. And you wake up from it thinking, I still feel tired. But someone went beyond 36 hours um, the world record for going without sleep held by Randy Gardner, 1964, is 11 days. Think about that. 264 hours. 264 hours, 11 days without sleep. I just, I can't imagine that. 36 hours, okay, push yourself a little bit, but 11 days without sleep. That there is a, a detrimental effect that it does have on the body. As a matter of fact, if you go one or two days without sleep, the body will begin to decrease its ability to properly metabolize glucose. It will, its immune system begins to stop working as well. And as a matter of fact, the internal temperature of the body begins to fall because it's saying to itself, something is wrong with you. In one sense, let me begin to protect you. The immune system is not functioning well. And there's one gentleman, actually, who decided he was going to watch all this, these series of soccer matches. And he did it, actually, for 11 days. And you say, well, why doesn't he have the world record? Well, in part because of a very sad ending, he died. Yeah. He died. When Randy Gardner did it in 1964, he was 17, and he actually read some articles about him. Now he talks about how one must sleep. He doesn't do this constantly. It's needed. So what does this have to do with providence? Again, well, even our title, Resting in God's Providence, we need to rest physically because it can have a detrimental effect on our body, and we need to most definitely rest spiritually, but that rest must have a proper object, and that object is God, and that object in particular is in his providence. We have to rest in that, because what is going to happen if we don't rest spiritually? There's going to be some damage spiritually. If we don't find a place of rest, there's going to be anxiety. There's going to be fear. 
there's going to be this sense in which you may even feel neglected when we don't rest in the Lord. We will not find that place of solace. And that's why we have to learn how to rest in the providence of God because in those moments of life and the song that goes that being a bridge over troubled waters, some of you may not be as familiar with that, but there are troubled waters in life and he must be that bridge over it and we rest in him as we go through these different stages in life. And so as we go through this study, we want to investigate certain terms and, and even ideologies and concepts, concepts such as, as we move ahead, free will. If God is a providential God that's controlling all things, what about my own choices? Are you telling me that really I don't have a choice in life and I don't have a choice in a spouse and I don't have a choice in a career and I don't have a choice to even be here today. I don't have a choice to be at Grace Church or a choice to be at Reality LA or a, church, a choice to be at First Presbyterian or wherever it may be. What are you telling me? What about free will? How does that interface with this? And what about the wills of God? And I, I want us to understand that a bit better when I say the wills of God. That is, what about God's perceptive will? What about God's um, moral will? What about his absolute will? What about his decorative will? What about his sovereign will? How do I understand these? How do they interface with my life? Is it possible that I can violate the will of God? We, we know that it, it's very much possible. Because the scripture tells us plainly, God's will for you is to abstain from immorality. Well, people don't always abstain from immorality, so they have violated the will of God. But we know that there is surely an absolute will. We know that, in fact, Jesus Christ will come back again. That is decreed. Nothing will change that. And so we need to understand the interface of these ideas. What about even this idea of humanism and secularism? Because as they look at life itself and how they define life and how they define the hurts and difficulties in life and how they would give um, answers to evil and suffering is very different than we would. Here's something else that we need to consider as we move through this and we'll gain a higher altitude, if you will, not today, but I'm, I'm prepping your thoughts for further study. What about deism and pantheism? In pantheism, you may not have heard the, the idea itself, and perhaps you have, and most likely you have, but pantheism looks at providence differently because pantheism is going to say, well, God is in all things. We would say, no, God controls all things, but he is not in all things. And then there's the idea of deism, that God, yes, some would recognize that there is a divine being, but this divine being is disengaged. He is not intimately involved in his creation. He has created it in the simplest view of it right now. He simply allows it to unfold. He is not controlling the elements of his creation. He is not causing, as we've looked at in our prior study, he is not causing the Greek empire to, to rise and the Persian empire to fall. He did not get rid of the Babylonian empire. He is not doing those sort of things. He is not particularly choosing a man like Abram and saying from you, I will create a seed and that seed will be a blessing to the nations. He is in fact a deity, but he looks with a, a sense of distance. He is not engaged. 
And aren't we so glad, and you should be so glad, that we serve a God who is engaged with our lives in a most intimate way. Amen for that? It's not with indifference. He, he knows the very hairs on our head. He knows the very steps of our lives. And so he is engaged in his providential care over our lives. And you can rest in that. I don't know, how, how would a person find rest in, in, a, in a, a view of deism? How do I find rest in pantheism? I can't. And then evangelicals who struggle with this idea, even at times of open theism, uh, of providence, and so now they've developed and thought through open theism, that there is an openness to God, that he is not as we think he is. God is responding to men and their choices. He does not know all things. He has not settled the future absolutely as we would propose that he does. So now we have in a simpler uh, way to communicate it, a responsive God, that now history is changing based on how we even respond. Then there's this idea of second causes. That Well, we know that God is not uh, the author of evil, so, but at the same time, we realize that God uses evil for his glory. Classic statement. What did Joseph say to his brothers? Someone tell me. What did he say? You meant it for what? But for what? Oh, wait a minute. How does that reconcile? How does it reconcile that they were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery? And even when you look at the psalmist, as he looked at it in Psalm 105, it says that God sent Joseph ahead of them. Wait a minute. God sent Joseph? Then if God sent Joseph so that jo that God worked evil in the heart of his brothers to be jealous with him and then to sell him into slavery? How do we reconcile that in this view of God's providence controlling all things? Those are questions they ask. And then there's the idea of preservation. God is preserving his creation. There's a, also a question of what we'll call governmental sovereignty. God controls every nation, and there is a place for that nation in time, and they cannot excel beyond it or even go beneath it beyond what God has allowed and what God has orchestrated. So today, uh, we share the blessings of the freedoms that we have here in America and even the prosperity that we have in America. But what is the future for our country? I can't tell you but God knows. We look at its decline morally, and, and one may become a prophet for a moment and say, surely something is going to change with that country, and it won't be for the good. The rising and falling of nations. And then we have this issue that we need to consider is evil and the goodness of God. As we already alluded to in the example of um, Joseph, why right now can you pick up a newspaper and see people that are slaughtered? Why do you see injustices all around you? Why can you see the pain of a mother who is holding their little child that's been killed in civil war? Why is that? If God is good 
And in a basic definition, as we think about the providence of God, if God in his goodness is moving along history for his ultimate good, or for his glory, that is, how can God be good and these things be reconciled? And here's a, another thought to consider. How many of you, um, I won't ask it that way. Um, let me, I'll, I'll ask it this way. How many of you believe in prayer? I know all the hands that go up in. Okay, all right. Okay, you believe in prayer. So do you believe that we should pray? Say amen, that's okay. Be a Baptist for a moment. I know some of you haven't forgotten how to say that, right? I, something else I was noticing on one of those songs, I was in the back looking around and thinking, wow, I see some heads bobbing in here. This is good. All right, you have the motion going here. All right. it, it's allowable unto the Lord, right? Amen. So you believe in prayer, do you not? Okay, do you believe we should pray? Absolutely. Why do you believe we should pray? Someone tell them. You can answer me right now. Yes, why should we pray? What's that? Jesus prayed, and he's our example, is he not? Follow me as I follow Christ. Yes, why should we pray? Amen. So, Lord, help them. It's a command. We're commanded to pray. Pray without ceasing. Right? In Colossians... Um, Colossians 4, um, 2, yes, 2, Colossians 4, then it'd be 2 to 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being alert in it um, with thanksgiving, he says. So to be devoted, you're called, you're commanded to pray. You're commanded to be devoted in prayer. So absolutely, we should pray. So we should follow the example of Jesus Christ. We know that we can get more done through calling out to a sovereign God that we can at times through our efforts. It is absolutely commanded, so we should pray. So now the question is, if we know we should pray, and we must pray, and we're commanded to pray, and that's the example of Christ, what about prayer and providence, those two Ps together? God, if you're controlling all things, and if you, you've settled in your decorative will all these things that are going to happen, where, why should I pray then? What is my three seconds going to do? I mean, if you declared even very nations are going to come and they're going to rise and others are going to fall, what does my prayer fit into that? I mean, if you're telling me that you've determined the ends of someone's life, and if I pray, do I, can I really have some role somehow? Do I extend their life? And if I didn't pray, are they going to die sooner than had I prayed? If I had prayed for the cancer, does that mean that you're taking it away? Uh, how does this all work, God? Why, why should I pray at all if these things are settled? And so we want to talk about prayer and providence. Would you want that question answered? I would think so. And I'm going to do my best to give you an answer that I think is biblical and can help you gain a sense of rest and maybe even encourage you to pray even more. See, if, if we understand uh, these ideas and we understand that they're important, I think they're going to help you build a stronger faith bridge. And we remember before we talked about the bridge and the strength of a bridge and why it's necessary. It's going to help you build that faith bridge. 
Because what is going to happen, you will have a more vivid and a deeper understanding of the one that you serve. He is the object of your faith. And if you have a more vivid and deeper understanding of God, then that bridge, which is controlled by, if you will, that is made by your heart and your mind, it can cross over whatever troubled waters God brings your way. And you you realize, I will cross over this because I'm resting in God's providence. Though I look beneath me and I see it's tumultuous beneath me, I'm on this bridge of my great God who is providential. And see, this understanding as we work through providence, um, it it acts like the parts of a strong bridge, and, and a strong bridge has its pillars and beams and concrete and various other reinforcements that are there. Absolutely necessary. We all want to navigate properly through our life journey. I know that you do. You wouldn't be here otherwise. I mean, think about it for a moment. Um, I, I know that you appreciate fellowshipping with one another. I know that you appreciate even having a, a little bite to eat in the morning. But more than that, you are here because you're saying, I want to be stronger in my faith. I want to grow stronger in my walk with the Lord. I want to navigate my journey of faith better. And that's why you come. At least that's why I hope you come. Now, there's some people that don't come for that reason, and I understand that. I'm not naive. But I believe that the vast majority of you are here because you're saying, I want to navigate better. And as you navigate better, you learn to trust in the goodness of God. And then you can have answers to people that are critical of your faith and are just inquiring minds. And you can find that place of solace in your walk with the Lord. And think about it this way with me. When you're walking with the Lord the way that you should and as we want to and people are observing us, then our lives can be an aroma to others that will attract them to our God. But if we're a person that is often sort of fickle, if you will, and there's a sense where there's distrust that we show towards our God, and we almost treat God as if he is, we do believe in deism, that God is indifferent to me and he's indifferent to my life, then our life won't be as attractive to other people. Before I say any more, let's look for a moment at Isaiah 26. And I'm convinced that this sense of our lives being attractive, or this building this bridge of faith, is only going to happen in proportion to our understanding and obedience to God. It, it cannot surpass that. That's why some people wonder, well, why do I not respond to God the way that I should? Well, in part, it's because of your understanding of God. Our, our affection for God um, won't surpass our understanding of God. We want to have a greater love for God and a greater affection for God. Well, I would say that stimulate your understanding of God, grow in who he is. And notice this demonstrated in Isaiah 26, verse 3. We're going to look at just briefly, and I'm still really in one sense in a part of the introduction, but it's all a part of the lesson as we dive back into providence. 
Look at chapter 26, verses 3. Let me start reading there. It says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in what? Perfect peace. Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. He has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. This is a great verse for anyone, for all of us, especially in those moments when we may find ourselves doubting and not trusting and, and being anxious. And notice what is being communicated here first. If we go back to verses 1 and 2, we notice something. It says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. And what he's saying here is, you must have this great confidence in God and on what basis because of God's faithfulness towards you. So now he makes this statement about why God is to be a, a God to be trusted. And then the response is to trust in God based on that confidence. If I can tell you how God as a covenant God is going to take care of you as a covenant people. Now, what is your response to him? Your response to him is to have an absolute confidence in this God. And this is why he says in verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Notice what he says, though, just briefly about the people of God. Who are the people that will find this rest? Who are these people that will have this peace? Notice how he characterizes them in verse 3. He says, first, the steadfast of mind. First, if we start with just when he says, um, those that have this frame of mind. or He's saying it's a frame of mind, it's a perspective, it's a constitution that these people will have. And what will that constitution be? What will that um, perspective be? It will be, as most translations will simply say, and it's a good translation, steadfast. And what is that implying? We think for a moment, what are the implications of something being steadfast. So we're committed to, we have a conviction. We're going to follow that principle. We're going to follow that person. Nothing will move it. And I've been using now this image of a bridge. Um, if you would, you would not have great confidence if you were crossing a bridge or if you're about to approach a bridge and you saw it swaying a great deal. You say, I'm not sure about that. Now, there's something in some bridges, obviously, they have to give some, like literally some buildings give some, if you will. They're, they're built that way. It's necessary. But if you saw it swaying back and forth and rocking, you may think, well, maybe let's take another out. What does the GPS say, right? You wouldn't do it. So those whose mind, there's perspective, whose constitution it will be steadfast, but not based on faith in themselves, but it's directed towards that object, and that object is a covenant-keeping God. And if we can rest in this covenant-keeping God, our minds will be steadfast. What happens to the mind when we're anxious? 
Where is it? What is it doing? You can, I'll, look, talk to me for a moment. What is it doing? It wanders, does it not? It has fear. What else does the mind do? It focuses on the negative, does it not? It focuses often on what we don't have or what could be and what may be. It tends to focus on those areas. And, it, and when it comes to fear, it's thinking about what may happen to me. What may be the outcome of this that is going to hurt me? But this steadfast mind is a mind that says, yes, I look around me and I see uh, this sea of waves around me, if you will, but this bridge is so stable. Let me go across it. It doesn't mean that beneath you these things aren't happening. And, and this is where sort of the faith, um, prosperity, movement is so atrocious because they want to somehow snap their fingers and say that this is going to be gone. That is a waste of spiritual energy. And I won't even call it spiritual energy. I think it's fleshly energy. Whereas what I need to do is focus my thoughts on that bridge that is on that God who is stable. And if I can focus my affections and thoughts there, then that will stabilize the mind. But go back to the text again. Notice what else he's saying. So when he says steadfast, what is interesting about the word steadfast, um, and it, it's obvious from the translation, I mean, the root of it means the idea to support. But what's interesting in the Hebrew language here, it's written in such a way in a passive form that carries this idea, it's leaning on, depending on, resting on, is what's being communicated here. So this mind is steadfast. And why is it steadfast? Because it's leaning, it's resting somewhere else. Um, how many of you have good friends? I can ask, come on, you have good friends, don't you? What, what can you, what's, why are they a good friend? Why would you say that they're a good friend? What are some of the reasons? They are a good friend because, how would you fill in the blank? You would say what? Faithful. They're faithful. They're a good friend because of what? What else might you say? Reliable. Did I hear, what's that word? Reliable. Reliable. Why are they a good friend? Support. They're honest. Support. They give you support. One would not say, that's a good friend. They're a total flake. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, they're an excellent friend. They're never there for me. <laughs> what an excellent friend. They're the best you know what, when I call them in time of need, they seem to always be busy. All of a sudden, I get some message back, you know, can't contact me right now. No, a good friends are someone that is reliable, that is dependable. In those moments of need, you can call them and say, may I talk with you? May I share this with you? And they are that person you can lean on. That makes them a good friend. And do we not have the best friend in the universe? And it is right, although we have a lofty view of God, it is not only right, it is biblical even to say that he is our friend. Because Jesus Christ said it himself, did he not? Even to his disciples, I call you what? Friend. Wow. That I can lean on this friend and depend on this friend so my mind will be steadfast. It will be supported. I will lean on. I can depend on. Because the tendency is when we are worrisome or doubting and there's mistrust, 
we're leaning somewhere else, aren't we? We're leaning on self. We're leaning on our resources. We're leaning on our abilities instead of leaning on the Lord. It's interesting. Notice something else. Go with me to chapter 36. Chapter 36 of Isaiah. And God, in part, is indicting his people for uh, their inconsistencies. And one of the greatest episodes in Scripture, great narrative, is here in chapter 36, 37. Um, when it, someone asked me, what am I going to do when I finish this series on the providence of God? Right now, I think what I'd like to do is teach through um, some uh, great passages in Isaiah. And this would be one of them. Shennacherib surrounding the city of God, Hezekiah king. And it says in verse 4, Then Rabshakeh, who is a representative for Shennacherib, king of Assyria, he says to them, verse 4, Thus says the king, the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against us? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Notice the words that are used here. Let me just draw your attention to them. Notice verse 4, confidence. Notice verse 5, rely. Verse 6, rely. At the end of verse 6, rely. Notice verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, so trust. And then again in verse 9, those who rely on Egypt. And then in verse 15, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. What is the Rapshakeh attempting to do here? He is saying to them, don't trust in God. Don't rest on him. And this is where this here translated rely means this idea to lean upon. And isn't it interesting that in chapter 26, what is Isaiah saying there? The mind who leans upon God, he will keep in perfect peace. But the moment you lean upon Egypt, there is no peace in leaning on Egypt. And that's why they're being ridiculed here to say, even if a reed that you leaned on it, it would pierce you. And why would, he, why would he use this language of piercing you? Because think with me for a moment. There may be, uh, if you think about a branch, if you will, and what can happen to a branch when it again, begins to lose sort of how the fibers are knit together? It, it creates little smaller portions of it, right? And if you lean on it, it could prick your hand, if you will, because there's no real strength to it, if you will. And that's what he's saying, that sort of Egypt is sort of like a branch that's losing its power, and if you were to lean on it, it would prick your hand. It has no strength. And that's why Isaiah says, don't lean on Egypt. Lean on the Lord. He is the one who will offer you support. So in God's providence, you say to yourself, God is controlling all things. Let me lean on his goodness. Let me lean on his sovereignty. Let me lean on his power. Let me lean on his holiness. So 
go back to chapter 26 briefly. Chapter 26. So sort of a, a play in the language here, leaning and supporting in one place and leaning and supporting in another. Lean on God. Don't lean on these people that you think will be your protectors. And of course, we know how that story unfolds um, with Isaiah 36, 37. God does protect his city. And what does he do? He wipes out 185,000 Assyrians with one angel. You go back to chapter 26. What does it say here? Trust in the Lord forever. For in the Lord God, you have an everlasting rock. Interesting in the language here um, that three times he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Trust in him. Trust in Yahweh. Trust in his all-sufficient God. And and just by him using that would have conjured up this image of God's all-sufficiency. So and that's the beauty of even how uh, the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are using words to say when they would have heard this communicated or they would have read it, they would say, yes, let me trust in Yahweh, trust in Yahweh, trust in Yahweh, this all-sufficient God. Why should I trust in Egypt? Not at all. And then we have to, in our own personal lives, we have to fill in our own blank and say, um, and I'll ask it this way, what is your Egypt? Yeah. What rod do you find yourself leaning on that is just going to splinter and prick into your hands? And isn't it interesting that sometimes um, we find ourselves leaning on the same rod again, and it was the one that didn't support us before? Isn't that curious? This time it will hold me up. Oh, it didn't again. No, this time it will hold me up. Oh, it didn't again. When, when, when will I learn this lesson? To lean on Yahweh alone. But that's the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, the Christian life is in part that, that we go through life and we're wondering, why am I repeating something that I should have learned this lesson many years ago. The last time I decided that I would place my trust here didn't work out very well, but I find myself here again. Why is that? And that's something that's called sanctification. And we're all in this process of sanctification, aren't we? And aren't you glad that God is patient with us as we're sanctified? Oh my, where would we be without it? So he says here, lean Notice briefly, though, verses 5 and 6, how it begins this transitional statement. For, so he gives now even more rationale why you should lean on him. For, he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. So here's a statement that God's track record is absolutely clear that those that you thought were mighty and lofty and high, God has brought them low. And we've already established that even from our prior study and looking at the rising and falling of nations. And he's reminding the people again, again, this is the Lord who fights for you. And even the episode that we alluded to in chapters 36 and 37 with the Assyrians that had surrounded the city and what happened, God fought for them 
and with his one angel, he went out and slew 185,000 because God said, and he would send a word to Hezekiah through Isaiah says, I will fight for this city. Why will I fight for this city? For my name's sake and for my servant David's name's sake. Because I'm a covenant-keeping God. And here's the beauty of it. And this is where we can take solace and rest and comfort. That God is not saying, I will fight for you because you are holy people who are obedient to me. I will fight for you because you have been so faithful to me and you're holding the covenant and you've not been polluted by the idols of the land. That's why I'll fight for you. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he doesn't. It's despite that. I mean, Isaiah gives us in great detail how the people are serving these false gods. He fights for his own name and he fights because he's a covenant-keeping God. And we can rest in that. So sometimes even in our prayers, we should be careful that we aren't praying, well, God, fight for me because look at how I live. Often the prayer is, God, fight for me despite how I live because I need your help. I need you to intervene. Now, I said a lot more than I had planned to say in this introduction it's really turned into a lesson. I knew I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time here in chapter 26. And there, to let you know what to expect next week, I'm going to introduce some of it now. That we need to rest as you understand the definition of providence. Rest as you understand the definition of providence. Just let me give you several of them, and I'm going to just read them for you. And we're going to, for a moment, consider some of the key words. Charles Hodge, his definition of providence. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence, therefore, includes preservation and government. Consider this definition by Millard Erickson in his work, Christian Theology. The providence of God means the continuing action of God in preserving his creation and guiding it toward its intended purposes. Preservation means that God maintains the creation that he has brought into existence. Government means that God is actively engage in achieving his purposes in his creation, and that sin cannot thwart those purposes. And that's important, as I'll pause for a moment in Erickson's definition, that God is actively engaged in achieving those purposes. So this is where we are not deist. He is actively engaged in your life. He is actively moving along history, and we can rest in that. Grudem's definition from his systematic theology. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which they were created. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. 
So what is God doing? If we look at his definition again, he says, number one, he keeps them existing, all things created by him, for him, through him. God is holding the universe together. Number two, he cooperates with these created beings, things, in every action. So every detail of life, God has his divine hand on, his stamp on. And number three, he directs them all to fulfill his purposes, not their own. We are here for one purpose, and it is one purpose only, and what is that? To live for the glory of God. Do you agree with that? Do you want to live for anything else? I mean, what else would you live for except for your own glory? And many of us, before you knew the Lord, that's what you lived for, did you not? You live for your own glory, and then you realize the dissatisfaction, really, that comes with living for your glory. And now that Christ has opened your eyes, and now you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can live for the glory of God. And what other cause is there in the universe except for the glory of God? What a privilege. What a great transformation that takes place. I mean, imagine that. You go from an enemy of God to now someone that is called his friend. And you can now have a mind that has stayed on him. And it'll be at peace as opposed to being at war. There's several other definitions that I have, but I just want to interact with a couple words in closing. Let me give you these words. And number one word is holy holy. Isaiah 6, a great image of God's holiness. Revelation 4, an image of God's holiness. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 103, a great image of God's holiness there. He says, Psalm 103, how is it? Well, look at Psalm 103. And why do I mention holy? Because even in Charles Hodge, in his definition of uh, providence, he talks about God's holy and wise actions. So God's actions being holy, they are set apart, they are distinct, they are unique. And we trust in those holy actions. And notice the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Notice what the psalmist says, bless his holy name. His prayers, his adorations, his affections are directed towards a holy God. And we know consistently through the word of God, a name is important, is it not? A name is important. So of God's name, it is holy, it is separated, it is distinct. And God is moving everything together, and it is consistent with his holiness. To recognize himself as distinct and separated. How about wise? Providence in, in wisdom. And I just give it to you, we'll pick it up next week. Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36. God is moving along creation and history based on his great wisdom. The depth of his wisdom, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. How about power? This all-powerful God that controls all things. As a matter of fact, this even leads us into this next word, preservation. Because, let me give you some scriptures for that. Hebrews 1 and 3. He upholds all things by the word of his what? His power. Even right now. Colossians 1.16. Things that are made by him, for him, through him. Jesus Christ. And then there's government. God controlling even the governments of the world. 
um, Psalm 103, 19. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. So again, we say to ourselves, if God is holy, and he is, and God is wise, and he is, and God is powerful, and he is, and God preserves, and he does, and God has sovereign rule over the governments, and he does, can I rest in him and his providence? And if God is actively engaged in my life, and he is, and we do not believe in a God from the standpoint of a deist, he has created and now he's disengaged, he intimately is involved with us, can I rest in him? We should. So we need to continue to build our own faith bridge that we can rest in this sovereign God. We have some time to fellowship a little bit afterwards. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and mercy and your grace. Help us to learn to rest in you all the more. In Christ's name, amen.